This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Where we explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. In the race to name this new bizarre geologic era, Anthropocene seems to have stuck the most. Some people are cautious to embrace a name meaning the age of humans, as it can be latched onto by industry and used as a justification for the murder of the planet. More descriptive, cautionary names have been suggested too. Michael Soule suggested the Catastrophozoic Era, other contenders include Homogeocene, Age of Homogeneity, Mixocene, Age of Slime, and the most resonant to me, coined by E.O. Wilson, Eremocene, the Age of Loneliness. With the human population in explosive expansion, it's easy to forget the Earth is going through the most rapid and possibly the most massive extinction crisis the world has ever seen. Joining us today to help us digest the great amount of information being amassed around the globe about this major juncture in Earth's history is Elizabeth Colbert. Elizabeth is a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change, and most recently, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, which has just won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. <laughs> there is a smattering in the public media about this sixth great extinction we are in the early days of. But considering the magnitude of this catastrophe, it should be ringing in the ears of every world leader, corporate chair, professor, parent, and child, so we can take the reins of this runaway civilization and attempt to ground it as gracefully as possible. I have heard numbers such as 200 species a day are going extinct but it's difficult to pin a number on it for many reasons. What are the numbers you have seen in your research? Or what data do you use to back up the fact that we are entering 
and essentially unleashing a mass extinction event? Well, it's a good question. And I guess the first thing that I, I should say is I people throw that number around of how many extinctions we're experiencing per day. And I think that that is considered pretty suspect right now. Um, it's based on using something called the species species area relationship and then looking at how much habitat is being lost. And it was sort of a projection based on rates of deforestation. And it's hard to know. There's a, a bunch of potential problems with it. So even though it does get bandied around in the popular press a lot, I, I don't think it gets used in the scientific literature very much at this point. And I don't use it except to point out that we can't document this. If it is happening, we can't document it. Um, now, one of the reasons that potentially we can't document it there, as I said, there are, are several potential reasons. It's either, you know, not happening or most of the species that would go extinct in any extinction event, mass extinction event, would be invertebrates uh, because they're the vast majority of species on the planet and we have very poor records of them. So there are all sorts of you know possible complexities to that number. Now, how do we know? So that's the negative, okay, about that number. Now, the positive, or I shouldn't call it positive, but the thing that we can say is, so how would we look at extinction rates today? That would be a useful way to look at them. And I think people have thought a lot about this because it is important to quantify, try to have some quantitative sense of what's going on. And one of the difficulties we have looking at extinction rates is we don't even know how many species there are on the planet. Not even, some people would argue, within an order of magnitude. So what people have done to try to constrain this problem is look at groups of animals or organisms, I guess I should say, that we do know pretty well. So mammals are a very good example. We have pretty good idea how many species of mammals are on the planet right now. And we also, they're very carefully monitored. Um, so we have a pretty good idea of, you know, which ones are endangered, which ones are critically endangered, etc. And if you look, people have looked, taken a look at how fast mammals are moving through various stages of endangerment um, and becoming extinct. And when they look at those, and there's just a pretty big study on this published pretty recently, um, they find that extinction rates are very, very high. They are the kinds of rates that you would expect to see during a mass extinction event. So those are the types of data that people point to when they say to say that we are now either in a mass extinction or on the verge of a mass extinction event are looking at well-studied groups and looking at extinction rates among those groups. E.O. Wilson published an article where he estimates the current extinction rate for certain areas is 10,000 times the normal background rate, and that biodiversity is heading to the lowest level since the end Cretaceous extinction event that snuffed out the dinosaurs and all land animals over 50 pounds. Here we have one of the world's most respected scientists delivering another chilling statistic. Can you break that down for us? Well, scientists try to calculate, you know, this idea of background extinction. So there's this idea that, well, extinctions are happening all the time. 
which is true. Species seem to have a certain um, sort of average lifespan, if you will, just like, you know, individuals have an average lifespan. And, but that seems to, you know, vary from group to group. And so what paleontologists have done is gone back and it's a very, very painstaking process. And they go through the fossil record and sort of look at, you know, when you see the first, if you look at, you know, some, some organisms are, are, are easily fossilized and, and some are not. And so you, you get a lot of biases in the record too, that way potentially. But if you try to look at when you start seeing an organism, an easily fossilized organism, which tends to be like an animal with a shell, for example, those are much more likely to be fossilized than something that's just, you know, very squishy, like, say, like a you know, worm or something. Um and you see when it appeared and you see when it disappears from the record and you do that over, you know, multiple, multiple species in a big group, you get kind of an average lifespan for a species in a group. And, you know, very, very roughly speaking, people have looked at the record and, and arrived at lifespans for species in different groups. Um, and, you know, very roughly speaking, the average species may last, let's say, a million years. And... So that would be the background extinction rate. If a species lasts a million years and you know how many species there are in that group, you know, you should be able to calculate, okay, roughly how often should we be seeing a species go extinct? Now, when you compare that, that's exactly what people are doing, you know, when they go out and say, okay, how many? So with mammals, the figure that I quote in my book, which was done, arrived at by paleontologists through a lot of painstaking work was, you would expect a mammalian species to go extinct let's say once every 750 years or so. And if you compare that to the rate that we actually are seeing mammals go extinct, you find that extinction rates, I don't know if they quite reach 10,000 times, um, but they're very, very high. And in, among some groups of animals, they probably are. They're certainly 100 times faster. For some groups, they're probably 1,000 times faster. And for some groups, they may already have hit 10,000 faster. Now, one of the complexities that you get into is there are a lot of species around right now that are not technically extinct, but they are already functionally extinct. So, you know, there's a lot of squishiness here, but that's the basic idea. You wrote about the biological dynamics of Forest Fragments Project, BDFFP, which is a study area down in the Amazon in Brazil where farmers were subsidized to go out and deforest the rainforest to graze cattle, but they were also required to leave a portion intact. And for 30 years, this patchwork of degraded and pristine forest have been studied. So what has been discovered through this about fragmentation, and is it contributing much to the extinction event? Now the BFFD is not really looking at extinction per se. It's looking at as the title suggests, looking at the dynamics of fragmentation, what happens, what you lose from a particular forest when you fragment it. So how big is the fragment? That turns out to be significant. But when you cut off a piece of forest, even if that piece of forest remains intact, it turns out you lose a lot of species. You know, theory suggests that, practice suggests that. And in fact, when you do the work, you find that same thing. But those species that are lost from that particular fragment are not extinct, right? We can sort of extrapolate from that maybe to extinction rates, but we're not actually looking at extinction because they may well exist somewhere else in the forest still. 
Well, the tropical rainforests hold an incredible amount of biodiversity, probably in the millions of species. And I'm wondering if there had ever been such species richness prior to the other extinction events, or is our current age the most biodiverse? One sort of very rough figure, you know, we often have the problem that we're, we're looking at the present. We have, even the present, we don't have very neat access because we have pretty dim understanding of the invertebrate life on the planet right now. We can't be in all places at once. Sometimes an animal is thought to be extinct and a tiny little population has survived and it you know, pops up again. So even now, even with the best you know, technology available and lots and lots of people looking for things, we still only have a very patchy picture of what's going on in the world. And in the case of previous extinction events, you're talking about going back tens and in several cases, hundreds of millions of years. So we have a very, very sketchy, you know, idea. But one rough figure that's thrown around is that in a major mass extinction, of which there have been five over the last half billion years, which is why my book is called The Sixth Extinction, 75% of the species have disappeared. So that's sort of used as the threshold for a major mass extinction. Now, Obviously, we have not yet gotten rid of 75% of the species on Earth, and I personally certainly hope that we won't. But the point is, to go back to the point I made earlier, that uh, if you look at the rate that things are going extinct, so for example, if you look at the rate mammals are going extinct now, you'd say, well, we could be reaching that 75% of all mammals within the next several centuries. And that is a very, very short span of time on the geological time span and we would have expected the mass extinction events of the past probably took several hundred several thousand many thousands of years so we are losing species at that rate uh, and that is what is extremely alarming now what biodiversity looked like in each of those mass extinctions the world looked very very different at different times and the major mass extinctions are turning points in the history of life that's very very clear and one of the major mass extinctions, which was a very, very serious extinction, the end Permian extinction about 250 million years ago, that was what brought to, to, the, to an end the Paleozoic, what's called the Paleozoic. Uh, and a whole fauna went, went out. I mean, it, it, it just, uh, the world changed very dramatically. So everything, you know, that went on uh, and, and had descendants formed what we call the Mesozoic fauna. And then uh, at the end of the Cretaceous period, about 66 million years ago, um, there was another major mass extinction, and the Mesozoic came to an end, and we now live in what's called the Cenozoic. So there's been this, these very, very dramatic shifts, and we wouldn't even recognize a lot of the creatures that populated the world. You know, they were the dinosaurs, but they were, you know, not dinosaurs. There were many, many creatures that didn't go on to have descendants, and so to us, they seem very odd-looking, but they were often very dominant groups of organisms prior to these extinction events.
But red moon is rising and the sun is falling down. Blood red moon is rising and the sun is falling down. Blue sitting on my shoulder, singing about my last go round. Times are hard, hard times ain't to blame. Good luck was trouble. Trouble wouldn't know my name or that moon is arising Giving me the evil eye My woman told me you can kiss yourself goodbye Blood red moon is rising and the sun is falling Falling down, all that blood red moon is rising, sun, sun is falling down. It wasn't always common knowledge that species even went extinct. What prompted this discovery? What was the thought process that science went through? And how did this revelation change our view of the world? Well, you know, Western science where it has a, a long and somewhat bumpy history. So, you know, things happened. They didn't happen sort of in a neat, progressive way. In the case of extinction, people believed through the 18th century, certainly, so through the 1700s, um, even, you know, people who were very sophisticated in, you know, different ways that, for example, Thomas Jefferson, that species didn't go extinct. They were part of this great chain of being. That was the way people looked at the world. Um, And every creature was a link in that change that had been made by, you know, a creator, and there was no point for the creator to make a link, you know, only in order to break it, and that would, you know, have ruined the lovely completeness of the chain. And so even as evidence sort of started to mount that there were these weird things that had existed that had left fossils behind but that didn't exist anymore, people really resisted it until the beginning of the 19th century when um, a French naturalist who is now somewhat of a forgotten figure, but who was really the great scientist, the great naturalist of his time, and was probably the most famous naturalist um, of the 19th century until Charles Darwin came around, so for for 50 years or so, um, just uh, looked at uh, mastodon fossils, where, where he's sort of one of his main inspirations and mastodon fossils came from the New World, so they came to Paris from the U.S., actually, from the Midwest. And they're very odd because they have elephant tusks, and they have, but they have, don't have elephant-like teeth. Their teeth are very different because they're part of a you know, pretty distinctive evolutionary lineage. And people had terrible time figuring out you know, what these were. Were they two different animals? Were they three different animals? And this French naturalist, Georges Cuvier, um, correctly surmised that they were the same animal uh, and that this animal didn't exist anymore. It was not a bit of you know, experimental deduction. It was sort of a, almost a, a leap of faith that he took in saying that. And of course, he turned out to be right. Uh, and he realized that there were whole worlds of extinct creatures uh, that had existed prior 
to the 19th century and people then subsequently went out and found them. I mean, the 19th century was a great time of paleontology, of digging up, you know, what we now know as dinosaurs, uh, all these, you know, really interesting creatures uh, that just came into people's consciousness in the 19th century and extinction as a concept that was born then. I've heard it said that amphibians are a kind of canary in the coal mine for this extinction event. Amphibian populations are collapsing especially abruptly, in part due to this fungus known as BD, which is now wreaking havoc worldwide. Why are amphibians susceptible, and do we know where this fungus originated? And is there a way of controlling or combating it? Well, I will say a couple of things. First of all, I don't necessarily, I mean, I'm not a naturalist, I'm not an amphibian specialist, but I think if you talk to amphibian specialists, they would not say amphibians are, are canaries, uh, the canary in the coal mine. I mean, the canary was brought in into this weird man-made environment to signal the coal miners are about to croak. Um, amphibians are have been around a lot, lot longer than people have, you know, um, and they're not necessarily particularly delicate creatures. They're their life history on Earth over many, you know, over hundreds of millions of years suggests that they're actually very robust creatures. And so that we shouldn't look at them as, you know, delicate creatures that are giving us um, a sign of something bad. We should, in, in, in some sense, be even more worried because they're actually, you know, very, very tough uh, creatures. <laughs> so that's just to frame the question somewhat differently. Now, BD is a, um, it's a fungus. And it appeared in many different parts of the world, you know, more or less simultaneously, as best that people can ascertain. And its origins remain somewhat mysterious. What people have done is they take um, samples of this fungus from, from the frogs around the world, and they've analyzed them genetically. And there's a very sophisticated genetic analysis that can be done now that can oftentimes, if you're fortunate, and if things line up, you can trace things back to their origin. You see where the genetic diversity was the greatest, and then you see it sort of different strains of it that got carried around to different parts of the world. And so you should be able to sort of build this family tree of this fungus and then trace it back to the matriarch or patriarch, however you want to put that, uh, and figure out where it came from. But, but in the case of BD, that has actually turned out to be very frustratingly difficult, and people have not been able to trace it to a clear source. So one theory, uh, which I think is not that popular now because the genetics haven't worked out, was that it was imported around the world on these frogs called African clawed frogs, which were 
exported from Africa in the 30s and 40s and 50s for pregnancy tests, for use in early pregnancy tests. So that was one theory. And then um, another theory is that it uh, might have come even from American bullfrogs, actually, who were been exported around the world just for just for food. They're grown for, you know, they're sort of raised as like, you know, little, little cattle or whatever around the world. So this is a, that's another possibility. And no one, um, no one knows. And because the genetics are a little bit obscure, it's, it's not entirely clear that anyone ever will know. But I think that the thing that convinces people that it was something that was moved around the world um, is, as I said, that it appeared pretty much simultaneously in, in a lot of different parts of the world. And it's very hard for a fungus to get around that quickly without human assistance. Certain fungi and diseases have spread around the world with disastrous consequences to species that have no resistance to them. But also, there are these invasive plant and animal species. Now, on a local level, biodiversity would go up in the short term as new species arrive. But the ecological balance can be thrown off and native species inevitably lose their place at the table. So could you tell us about your findings about how invasive species are contributing to the extinction event? Yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of diversity, right? I mean, there's local diversity, and then there's global diversity. And, you know, we've moved a lot, a lot of stuff around the world. We are still continuing to move stuff all the time. I know a lot of the times we do it on purpose, um, and a lot of the times we don't do it on purpose. But the bottom line, and I think it's sort of not at all debatable, is at least in a kind of human time frame, there are parts of the world where diversity has increased in a local sense, your backyard, for example. But because invasives and introduced species have tended to have a really devastating effect uh, on islands, for example, in particular, which where you have a lot of you know, really fascinating creatures who have evolved in the absence of certain kinds of predators, let's say, in the absence of whole groups and whole classes of other animals. So, for example, I was in New Zealand about a year ago, and, you know, New Zealand, is a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty big place, um, but it had no, um, no terrestrial mammals until humans arrived. It's just a weird quirk of evolutionary history. And it was isolated for a very, very long time. And then people showed up. And so, so they had a lot of ground nesting birds. Some of the most famous are the kiwi, um, who are, you know, really wonderful, very, very sweet creatures and very defenseless against mammalian predators um, and very smelly, too. That's another interesting fact is that uh, a lot of these ground nesting birds on New Zealand are kind of stinky and that is because they didn't have mammalian predators and mammals hunt by smell. So as soon as mammals showed up and they sh- you know, showed up in the form of rats and cats and, and once again, things that people brought purposefully and things that they brought accidentally, uh, these birds were just devastated. And so many of them no longer exist. So New Zealand in itself would be a good case study because in some level there may be you know, more species than there used to be, right? I mean, you know, rats are... Or another species, they're a form of biodiversity, but the species that only existed on New Zealand are gone. So we've lost we've lost species in a global sense, uh, even though in a very local sense, in some parts of New Zealand, they actually have more species now than they used to. 
While we're in that part of the world, I'd like to talk about what's threatening the very existence of the Great Barrier Reef and all the world's coral reef, and that's ocean acidification, which has been implicated in mass extinctions of the past. Some scientists have warned that the oceans could become all but uninhabitable by 2100. That's two-thirds of the globe emptied of life. Can anything be done to counteract this acidification process? And in your view, how likely are these outcomes? Well, ocean acidification refers to this process by which, you know, when we put carbon dioxide into the air and you're putting a lot of carbon dioxide into the air by burning fossil fuels, um, so a lot of it, it, it goes into the air, right? You know, it comes out your tailpipe or it comes out of a smokestack. And then a lot of it, about a third of it, gets uh, dissolved very quickly in the surface waters of the ocean. And that's just because there has to be an equilibrium between the air and the water. And, and to achieve this equilibrium, um, when you, you know, stuff a lot of CO2 into the air, you are, in effect, also stuffing it into the ocean. I, that's not very scientific, but it's the best I can do right now. And what happens when CO2 dissolves in water is it forms an acid, carbonic acid, and it's a weak acid. If you had a carbonated beverage, you drink it, um, but it is an acid. And so it changes the chemistry of the oceans. And the oceans are naturally kind of alkaline. For people who remember their high school chemistry, they should have a pH of around 8.2, the surface waters of the ocean. So we've already reduced that to around 8.1. And it's just going to continue to be driven down as we dissolve more and more CO2 in the water. So as the water becomes more acidified, it's not becoming acidic, but it's becoming acidified. And when you think about it, changing the chemistry of the ocean, if you're a marine creature, is a, is a really big deal because marine creatures only interact with the rest of the world through their contact with the water. So it's akin to changing the composition of the air for us. And you can imagine that that could have some pretty serious consequences. And in terms of what we could do about it, there's really only one thing that we can do because there's nothing you can do to prevent the oceans from taking up CO2 once we put it into the air. That's just a you know, really fundamental geophysical process. So the only thing that we can do to prevent the oceans from taking up more and more CO2 is stop putting it into the air. I don't think anyone has come up with, even in theory, a different solution. And do you think that this mass extinction and all the human meddling with the Earth that has brought it about could have such profound effects that Earth no longer will be able to host such a diverse array of complex life forms? Or would we just expect a new and different cast of characters? Well, I mean, I think that all we have to go on when we look at mass extinction is the fossil record, and that is, as I said, that's a kind of a scratchy mirror because it, the record is in many cases old, in many cases sort of patchy, and, and then, you know, obviously involves, as you know, we were talking about before, whole different groups of organisms that simply don't exist anymore. So, you know, we don't necessarily have a good analog. And in fact, one of the phrases that you see more and more in the scientific literature is this idea of a no analog future. So we are going into a future in which in certain sort of 
geochemical sense, I guess, almost. Um, there's no analog. There's just nothing you can find in the fossil record that is a very good parallel to what the planet's going to be like. But if you look at the mass extinctions of the past, one thing that's clear is that it takes a long time for biodiversity to rebound just because you're speeding up. Extinction doesn't really mean that you're speeding up evolution. You're opening up a lot of ecological, you know, what are sometimes called ecological niches. Um, but the process of evolution, which is a random process of, you know, genetic mutations, I mean, some people might argue, I suppose, in some ways, that it does get speeded up in the sense that you do have all this empty space out there for organisms to fill. But, you know, the process of mutation probably doesn't get sped up. So, you know, and, and in some sense, evolution remains, you know, fairly constant. And so what we see when we look at that is it takes really millions of years for biodiversity to rebound. And if you actually succeeded in the an extinction that rises to the level of a major mass extinction, then yes, absolutely, you'd expect a new cast of characters many millions of years from now. You know, it wouldn't be something that humans, our own species, which has, you know, presumably has its own lifetime of roughly a million years, uh, we wouldn't be around to see it. But that's at least what you would expect to see in the eventual fossil record.
We're here with Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction, Elizabeth Colbert. You were involved in research in Peru, tracking the ability of trees to respond to warmer temperatures and extend their range uphill into the cooler altitude of the Andes. What did that research turn up? Are the trees able to migrate, in a sense? Well, I, I was just a tag along with a bunch of scientists who have been going to the same area and have laid out a very intricate series of plots that they've been looking at now for several years to try to, as you say, figure out how are tree communities responding to climate change. And what they have found is that different trees, different groups of trees respond differently. So some trees are um, very responsive to climate change and they have moved upslope. So obviously trees can't move, but they can put out seeds, right, which are then going to sprout and survive at higher and higher elevations. That's sort of what you would expect uh, if you're just doing a really back-of-the-envelope sort of ecological calculation. So some trees have, have moved almost as fast as temperatures are rising, and they're rising very, very quickly in the Andes. And some have not. In fact, most have not moved nearly as fast as temperatures are changing. So what does that tell us? Well, at the very least, it tells us that the composition of the forest is going to change under climate change. That's the effect that you'd anticipate, and it's almost certainly the effect that we are seeing and that we're going to see more and more of. Now, what does that mean for everything that lives in those communities and these very intricate relationships? As certain relationships break down, are new ones going to form? Are species going to drop out? These are really hard questions to answer, and they get back to the point we were talking about earlier, that you have to monitor things really, really carefully, and you're sitting there in the cloud forest. You can't even you can't see more than a couple of yards away because you're in very, very dense vegetation. So people are also trying to figure out ways to sort of piggyback on this experiment and try to figure out what's happening to the birds, what's happening to the insects, and on and on, but it's a very time-consuming and very labor-intensive project. Um, so I don't think we have any you know, very good results from that yet. And since plants, trees, mosses, and the like can't move on a set of legs, there's been a lot of talk about assisted migration, manually transferring plant communities to more conducive habitat. Is this viable or even realistic, or just wishful rearranging of deck chairs on a sinking ship? Yeah, I don't know that there is actually much of that actually going on because you do raise this question of how do you know? I mean, I think that what this uh, experiment indicates really nicely is here is a relatively undisturbed forest as forests go in the world, and we're watching in real time the response of that forest to climate change. Now, if I decided, well, I want this particular species to move and I... Uh, helped it, let's say, by planting it further and further upslope, um, you know, would I be, as it were, doing the forest a service? Um, that's a really, really difficult question to answer because we don't really know. We just don't know the answer to that. So, um, you know, in cases, so I think that's, that's a very, very contested subject right now. And it's just saying, okay, well, we've 
you know, screwed with the system so far that we've changed the climate, that we've made it inimical to a lot of organisms where they are now. And now we are going to have to decide, you know, which ones to move and to where. And then you get to another interesting and really complicated set of calculations, which is that organisms don't just respond to temperature. You know, that's also very clear, once again, when you go back and look at the pollen record, which people have done very, very carefully in certain parts of the world. Pollen is these tiny little grains, but if you look at them under the microscope, you can, under the right circumstances, um, and this is often done in lake beds, like old lake beds, you pull up a core and you can see what kinds of trees were in the area from many thousands of years ago, because pollen turns out to be extremely durable, these microscopic grains of pollen. So from that, we kind of have a good idea that trees, for example, don't just respond to the temperature, they're also responding to changes in rainfall. Um, Some are more sensitive to temperature, some are more sensitive to water availability, and the list goes on and on. So if you wanted to move X species, Uh, Should you move it well where the temperature is suitable? Should you move it to where the rainfall is suitable? You know, so there are a lot of variables. And I don't think that anyone would suggest that we really know what we're doing, even for a single species here, uh, much less a whole forest's worth. So as much as there is a scientific debate, there's an ethical debate as well. Are we going to be the curators of life? We've come to the conclusion that we are causing this. Now, should we take the responsibility to counteract the extinction trend? Right. Are we the deciders? Well, on one, you know, on one level, you could say, well, obviously we are the deciders. We are making decisions, even if we don't acknowledge it or realize it or doing it consciously. We are making decisions collectively, you know, all 7.2 or 3 billion of us that have tremendous effects that we often find very difficult to anticipate what they're going to be. And But then when you say, okay, well, let's consciously take action to counteract this massive decision, quote unquote, that we've all made uh, by moving, starting to move individual species around, then the ethics of it, which were already incredibly complicated, but were unconscious, they come to the fore, right? You know, so are you, should you be moving this species which might displace another species because of your hunch, you know, that it's not going to survive where it is, et cetera. So it does become very fraught very quickly. I think it's going to occupy us more and more, though, as we go forward. And in terms of the frozen zoo, what that is, that is one of these collections of frozen cell lines And that particular one is at the San Diego Zoo, although there are several other important cell banks in other places. And what what they're doing is they're preserving tissue of organisms that some of them are very rare. Some of them, in fact, in that case, one of them at least is already extinct. And some of them are not rare. But what they would say they're doing and what I believe they're doing is they're preserving things so we have a record of them, you know, and so we can look at their genetics later on. Um, Not necessarily so that we can manipulate them or move them around, but in a sense that we would have a library moving forward. But in terms of the passenger pigeon, I was watching a talk about de-extinction, and they brought up implanting a fertilized egg created from DNA of an extinct species into an existing species. Are we nearing that capability? Right. That is, at this point, 
a very fascinating concept, but it's not at all even being used. It's very, very far from, you know, proof of concept. So in the case of the passenger pigeon, we don't have a, a passenger pigeon genome at this point. It's certainly possible that you could get one. You know, there's a lot of passenger pigeon material around, and but it's um, everything's been dead for at least 100 years since it's you just um, marked the 100th anniversary of the death of the very last known passenger pigeon. And so you'd have, so once an organism dies, its um, DNA very, very rapidly starts to disintegrate. But there probably is enough DNA left in all these um, passenger pigeons that we have around that you could reassemble it through some you know, very sophisticated genetic work, you would never have a perfect one, but you would have a, an approximation. And then you could start to potentially manipulate the genome of its closest relative, which is a pigeon that lives west of the Rockies, whereas the passenger pigeon lived east of the Rockies. And, and then it would get brought up by one of those birds. All these things are theoretically... Uh, potentially possible, but we're very, very far from actually being able to do them. And then you also get the interesting idea of then, well, what would you have brought back? Well, it, it clearly wouldn't be a passenger pigeon. And a lot of what an animal is is also, you know, learned behavior. Birds learn a tremendous amount from their parents, so we don't have any parents around to teach them. So they're going to be this other kind of weird hybrid pigeon. And, you know, whether that has any efficacy or point, uh, to be honest, I'm pretty unconvinced that it does, um, but I understand that people find it quite fascinating. Where do you think our efforts will be best directed for conservation? Well, I, I think our efforts would be, you know, and I, once again, I, I really try to preface it whenever I offer an opinion like this by saying, you know, this is not really my opinion. It's an opinion I've heard from 
experts in the field. I don't want to say it's universally shared by experts in the field, but I think it's a very commonly voiced opinion, and I, I find it pretty compelling. Um, and that is this idea that we should really try to be preserving to you know whatever extent we have intact tracts of forest. And also the same thing would go for the marine realm, the same thing would go for savanna, whatever you know, ecosystem you're talking about, to the extent that you have large intact ecosystems or, or semi-intact, because that may be the best we can do these days, um, to try to um, preserve them. I mean, I think that the idea that we're going to overcome one kind of vast manipulation of the planet with these little incy-weensy, you know, let's move this plant here or this animal there and see how it goes, are really kind of ridiculous, to be honest, because one thing that we really should have learned about the natural world is it's pretty unpredictable and it's hard for us just looking at one variable or even a hundred variables, you know, to to know what what will actually happen because the natural world is arrived at by this interesting process of trial and error that is evolution. So I think that, um, and, you know, this has been voiced by many people, having as many large, intact forests as possible that have some form of connectivity. That's a big buzzword these days in conservation. So because everything's on the move, as we discussed, in terms of either upslope or to higher latitudes, um, they need to be able to get to where they would go that also gets to this question of well some species will follow the temperature what's known as the isotherm some would follow rainfall so we need to sort of let them go as it were uh, where they want to go and the other point is obviously to try to preserve as many lineages as possible i mean some people eo wilson talks about this moment that we're in right now as a kind of a as a bottleneck where we possibly have the maximum number of people on Earth, certainly that there have ever been and maybe that there ever will be. So we take up a lot of resources as people. And if you can get as much of the world's biodiversity through this moment, then eventually, perhaps, and this is the most hopeful thing that you could think of, you know, there'll be a time when the human population starts to decline, you know, just for natural reasons that we stop having as many kids, we go through this bulge sort of, and our impacts also decline, and maybe there will be more space, just, you know, sort of sheer physical and ecological space for some of the species, and if we've managed to get them through what is right now a very bad time, and what will probably be in coming decades a very, very bad time, uh, then maybe you will have done the best you can in really bad times. And the fear, the flip side of that, is that by the time human populations start to decline for whatever reasons, potentially for very bad reasons, for very ugly reasons, we're going to take a lot of the rest of the world down with us. Don't have no mercy 
Living here in California, the drought is a big topic of conversation, and we are being told refraining from lawn watering and taking shorter showers is going to make a dent in the water shortage. And that's fine, but we're well aware it's actually industry that's accountable for the vast majority of water use. What industrial activities would you say are the biggest drivers of extinction? Well, I, I just want to say one thing in California, is it industry or is it, is it agriculture? Yeah, I'm including industrial agriculture in that. Well, you know, the way that we farm is definitely, it's a huge contributor to loss of habitat. Is that a big driver of extinction? Probably it is. That sort of gets back to the point we were talking at the very beginning, which is we we don't know what's happening to a lot of the species on Earth because we're not really keeping track of them. But yeah, industrial agriculture is is really huge um, water use, as you point out, but also, I think, even maybe more significantly, it's conversion of very big tracts of land to monocultures. Obviously, when you're converting a big tract of habitat, whatever it was, into one thing, corn, soy, whatever it is, uh, and you're a creature that can't live off that, well, then you're, you know, you're just out of luck. So you, you just uh, have to either have some other place to go or, or you're going to die out. And now another thing that we do with monocultural agriculture and, and agriculture in general that I think is, is proving really damaging and, and destructive and people are talking about this sort of second coming of silent spring is we have developed a whole new generation of pesticides. We may really regret having spread all over the U.S. and Europe and seeing really significant impacts on insect populations and you know, when you start to see your insects going, it's probably a pretty bad sign. Yeah, and I'm wondering, there is still debate about climate change and the Anthropocene extinction, and somehow people are denying our implication in the whole thing. Now, your books have had a huge reach already and have earned you a Pulitzer in nonfiction, and they can be had as audiobooks as well. So how have your books been received by the press and the public with your unequivocal stance on climate and human-driven extinction? Have they brought about any hostilities or debunking efforts? Well, you know, as we speak right now, Obama is in Alaska talking about climate change in the Arctic. And I think that simple climate change denial is becoming harder and harder to sustain. It's simply irrefutable that the climate is changing. It's changing in exactly the ways that were predicted. So you really, really have to go to fantastic lengths 
to explain what's going on without referring to, you know, what are just basically the facts. But, you know, there's levels and levels of denial as it were. There's just people sticking their fingers in their ears. So even if, you know, what they believe is important, but what they do is also important. So if, if, even if you say, well, I think climate change is the problem, or maybe it isn't, whatever your attitude is, if we're not voting for some really pretty drastic policy changes, then, you know, it doesn't really matter whether people, quote, unquote, use climate change, they don't like to use that. Um, phrase because it's sort of like you know do you believe in the Loch Ness monster and that's really not the kind of phenomenon that we're talking about we're just talking about basic geophysics here but once again all that being said I got a surprisingly positive reaction to both of the books I did not get a lot of pushback from people you know there always were the people sort of trolls on the internet or whatever but I got an overwhelmingly positive response to both books I'm also wondering, where can people go to find more of your writing? Well, I, I write mainly for The New Yorker. So um, if people want to find um, some of the articles that, you know, went into the book or the piece I did out of New Zealand, which we talked about, the invasive species of New Zealand, um, if they go to The New Yorker website, they can probably find those. Well, I'm so grateful for the immense amounts of information you have sifted through to put these books together and the many laps around the globe you have made to get the first-hand narratives you've brought us. So thank you so much for all your work, for being on this program. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Elizabeth Colbert on Unlearn and Rewild. I'm Ayanna Young. The songs you've heard were Blood Red Moon by Dave Van Ronk, Davers and Denzetta by Fred Frith, New Myth by Leah Isis, Cathedrals of Florida Lis by Robbie Basho, and Death Don't Have No Mercy by John Martin. The theme song is Like a River by Kate Wolf. Editing is by Nicole West and production by Marchand. Drifting on the wind Through the mountains like a river Sweet smell of pine Tall western cedar Drifting on the wind